All right, let's have a word of prayer and we will get underway. Our God and Father, we thank you for your rich love to us and Jesus. We thank you for the challenge and encouragement that we received in the previous hour. And we ask that as we spend time and study and reflection on your wonderful word, that we would be further encouraged in the truth and that you would unite our hearts together with all those who love you in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me say a word to you about me, if you don't know who I am. Uh, Scott Bashore and my wife Heidi is here, and I'm a co-pastor at the Community Bible Church in Anaheim, not too far from the Mouse House uh, from Disney. We get uh, free fireworks every night, whether we want it or not. Uh, and uh, for whole 15 or so years, I've been also teaching at the Master Seminary, teaching mostly Old Testament classes, Hebrew, but also some English Bible classes, too. Uh, let me say something about this seminar. This I, I love to preach the passage that I'm going to take us through today, but this is not going to be a sermon. This is going to be sort of a pre-sermon. It's going to be a little bit more lecture-like, so if you, if you feel like you're back in class somewhere, that's intentional. Uh, and some of the stuff that in your handout, I hope will become part of the, the next book that I do, which uh, would be visual outline charts of the Psalms. So the, the first book that the Lord enabled me to, to do, I've got a few copies up here if you want to look at later, visual outline charts of the New Testament are full page charts that use color to kind of guide your eye through the text. So I'm preparing that same sort of thing for each Psalm. And... Um, Psalm 133 is not a big one to chart out, but uh, I, I hope it'll uh, you'll, you can see perhaps the benefit uh, of that. All right, so let's get into our, our material today. And your your handout, by the way, just so you know how this works, it's a it's trifolded in a Z fold. So uh, there are uh, there's uh, three panels on the front, and then there's three panels on the back. There's I think there's some handouts on the the chair right there in the back. Uh, by the door. So we'll be on this front side and then uh, we'll flip over to the back in just a little bit. So let's uh, take a look at this psalm together. You can follow on the screen or with your Bible in hand if you'd like. It reads, A Song of Ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Let's uh, do some points of introduction here. This little psalm is both well-known and also pretty unfamiliar. Uh, one of the brothers mentioned at the beginning, he asked, are we going to sing the song that goes to this? Not, now, I didn't know that there was a, a, a chorus. and I asked him now, is it the whole psalm or is it just verse 1? He said, oh, I think it's just verse 1. So verse 1 tends to be the verse that most people know about with Psalm 133. How good, how pleasant brothers dwell together in unity. And then you start getting into the oil and the dew and people are a bit unfamiliar with what on earth is going on there. Who is Herman and what is he doing with his dew? And what is this oily beard and wet hillside sort of imagery going on here? This is obviously a short psalm, it is, but it is long in meaning. It, it is a beautifully written little poem, and I'll share with you some of the poetic features just so you can get a little feel for the artistry that has gone into composing it. Some of it is lost in translation, that is the poetic effects, and some of it is still visible to us. But even beyond the artistry of the poem is the deep significance that I think continues on in relevance to us by application. Um, this is a psalm that was written for a specific purpose. There was uh, at least a, a single ancient celebration that David had in mind when he wrote this, or maybe a kind of celebration when it was first written. It, it is rooted deeply in Israelite religion. It refers to um, some customs that we don't do at all in our Christian worship, but it clearly has continuing relevance for God's people uh, today. 
Let me uh, say a few things about the setting, and the first point of that would be the authorship of this poem. There are two headings to the poem, and by the way, I believe that the superscriptions, that is the headings in in the book of Psalms, uh, are part of the inspired text. When it says a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, when he the, that that is that is in the Hebrew Bible, that is verse one. Um, now there are occasions where different manuscripts will have a heading written a certain way, and others want, might not have it. And we we deal with those issues like we do any other issues involving ancient manuscripts. The New Testament repeatedly affirms the authority of those titles. Jesus himself tells us that the heading for Psalm 110 was right; that David, in fact, wrote that psalm. Um, so, uh, unless there's some compelling reason within the body of texts that say that there's a problem with the heading, I always give those the uh, their due as, as part of the inspired text. So it's a psalm by David, and that helps us to understand perhaps some of the further settings. Um, there's a reference to Zion in verse 3. Down in verse 3, uh, in the middle of the verse, coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That means that this psalm cannot be before David's seventh year on the throne. Because for the first seven years of his reign, he is ruling out of Hebron. And in the seventh year, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 5. Uh, remember, he and his mighty men overtook Zion. Zion seems to be a Semitic word that means fortress. And basically, the old city of Jerusalem was a, it was built around the Gihon Spring, which was a low-lying um, underground spring, and they built a big fortress around it because, you know, if you cut off a water supply to a city, you pretty much starve out the city. So the Jebusites and the other ites before them had built up this fortress there. And you remember the story, David and his mighty men entered in through the underground passage and, and scaled up the 30 or so feet and overtook the city. And then that became the city of David. And after he had established the political capital there, in that same year he moves the religious capital to Jerusalem. And then we start to get these songs of Zion, as this now becomes a place where people get for worship. There are, there's a reference, of course, to tabernacle rituals in verse 2 about the anointing of Aaron. And uh, this, again, suggests that uh, this psalm, which uh, David composes, is no earlier than 1003 B.C. That is the year, not only when, when Jerusalem becomes his capital, but Jerusalem becomes the center uh, of, of worship. And now, I'll say, uh, we'll go on now to talk about the historical significance behind this, because the restoration of the tabernacle by David is one of his greatest achievements in his government. You remember that under Saul's rule, the tabernacle just sputtered. I, I mean, he, he, he persecuted the priests. Doeg, the Edomite, who killed off all those priests, was, off, was operating under Saul's authority. I mean, they lost the Ark of the Covenant in Saul's day. It was a horrific time for Israelite religion. Um, So one of the things that David does is to reestablish the public worship of the Lord. There there were always those who knew the Lord, and there were those trying to do what little they could. But without an ark, without a functioning tabernacle, there's huge portions of the Torah that cannot be observed. So David is a reformer. Uh, and during this period, now you have uh, this explosion of new worship music accompanying the restoration of tabernacle worship. So most of the Psalms in, in our Bible are written after this period of restoration. And again, with this uh, restoration of public worship, and we're on now the second panel in your handout, with the restoration of public worship and a greater observance of Torah, the Spirit sparks in David this explosion of new worship music. Uh, another point of historical significance, again, uh, verse 3, the end of verse 3, mentions Zion. And that helps us understand what kind of gathering of brothers that we're talking about. The gathering of brothers together is taking place in Zion. 
So this is not a psalm celebrating how good it is to have everyone home for the holidays or having family reunions. And those are wonderful things. But there's something more significant here than just blood brotherhood uh, or close family connections. Um, You remember that in Exodus 23, and you see the references there, number two in your handout, in Exodus 23 and 34, Uh, the Lord commands Israel that three times a year your men shall appear before me. And and don't worry about your fields. The Lord will not let anyone uh, become jealous of your fields. I I will protect you as you come for the assemblies. And these were the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have been in our March or April. And then the next month, the Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sorry, of Harvest, which would be May and June. And then the Feast of Ingathering in September and October. Uh, All the men uh, expected to come, all the able-bodied men. Obviously, there's going to be people who can't make it. They're physically infirm. And this is the kind of thing, by the way, in in later generations, the the religious leaders would would give people dispensations. They were dispensationalists in a small D kind of way. You know, they they would, uh, the the, the whole system of binding and loosing. They'd say, well, I'm bound. I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem at festival, but I have to take care of my ailing grandfather. And so the, the, uh, might be a Rabbi, it might be a Pharisee or some, or a scribe, would say, "Well, you are bound to the law of, of caring for your parents, and you are loosed from the law of going to festival." So they would give them exemptions and those kinds of things. And when Jesus, but this is way off topic, but when Jesus says to the disciples that He's giving them the power to bind, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven; whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's the idea that you are they're, they're going to be granted authority to make determinations as the church is established, and whole new ways of operating are set up and what parts of the Old Testament are we supposed to observe and what parts are we not supposed to observe. There's an apostolic, a a real apostolic authority, not like what we learned about in the last hour, uh, is operating in those kind of cases. Now, how did I get onto all that? Uh, uh, Going to festival, yes, going to festival. So uh, the, the, uh, uh, the first heading that you have there, it says a song of ascents. And there are 15 of these songs are all in a row from Psalms 120, Psalms 120 to 134 have that title or something closely associated with it. And traditionally, it is believed that these psalms were sung by pilgrims on their way to festival. Uh, there, there's actually a couple different traditions as to how or when they were sung. One of the uh, medieval, uh, one of the late ancient theories was that when the Jews got to the Temple Mount, uh, as they stood on the bottom step, they would sing Psalm 120, and then they'd go up another step and sing 121, and they'd go up another step and sing 122. And that that may be that might have been a custom that developed later. I'm more inclined to think that these were songs that they sang as they walked there. Uh, you know, uh, to get from the south of Israel up to Jerusalem is a well. It took Abraham three days. Uh, to get from the north of Israel down to Jerusalem could take a week, two, three, depending on what kind of a route you got to go. Uh, so there was a lot of time invested in this. And, and so these would be songs that would prepare their hearts for what they were going to do. Uh, they, the, the songs begin, Psalm 120 is a lament where the worshiper is lamenting how he's surrounded by a bunch of dirty, rotten liars. They're crooked and deceptive, and, and it ends with this plaintive cry uh, basically asking, Lord, how long do I have to be around these people? And the idea is, I'm, 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 get, I'm on pilgrimage, I'm leaving behind these people who don't care about God, whether they're other Israelites or pagans around them, and I want to go to the place where truth is. Um, as you move further through that collection, the latter ones are loaded with references to Zion. It's almost like the songs take you through a pilgrimage of being far away and now you're in Jerusalem and you have those psalms that say our, our feet are within your gates O Jerusalem uh, standing here with the people of God you know, and the delight of being within that tightly compacted city um, uh, the Song of Ascents is a collection that David seems to be the originator of. Now, he does not write all of them. For instance, Psalm 126, if you glance back a page or two uh, in your Bible, is obviously not written by David. It doesn't have a uh, statement of authorship, but it says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. You know, this is post-exilic. 
you know. So you, eventually these 15 psalms are arranged into the order that we have them now. But David seems to be the one who started this kind of song for pilgrimage. And I think Psalm 133 is one of the earliest ones uh, that he wrote. So what kind of a psalm is this? What genre? Here's our French word for the day. Genre. It's, it's, genre is kind of like the, we, we get our word gene and not blue genes, but your, your physical genes tell you what kind of person you are. Um, in the world of taxonomy for animals, the genus refers to a kind of animal, and then below that is species. Well, with, when it comes to psalms, there's all sorts of different kinds of psalms. They have different genes, if you will. And um, I want you to take a look over at the chart that's on the right side, or better, whichever you prefer. You can take a look at the, the chart there, and uh, I'm going to zoom in in a moment on some of these sections. But at the top there in the gray portion of that chart, it says, The Psalms were written as poems to be sung mostly in corporate worship and to a lesser degree for personal use. There's a wide variety of psalm types or genres, and many psalms mixed together. Uh, some of the genres together. So you can see that there's three categories that I've lumped all of these in. I have about a dozen different psalm types. There are probably some more. Uh, I've seen lists of 15, 16. And, and then what do you do when you have psalms that are, are two kinds? You know, you have hybrids. But there are, um, so let, let's take a look at that blue section. There are psalms celebrating the divine order. Um, they're, they're praising God for the way things are. Hymns of praise, which call to worship, calls to worship to God for His worthiness and goodness. Like let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's just a sheer hymn of praise. There are songs for ceremonies that are celebrating the way God has established his worship in the tabernacle. These are probably the psalms that are the most foreign to us because our worship is not like Israelite worship in in most ways. These are songs used for entering the temple or for special liturgies like Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may go in. That's probably written for when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. It's a song written for that event, and it, and they sing, and they look back to it, and they sing about what happened. We have hymns, all, a lot of our hymns look back to big things that Jesus did, that God did, and so this is a psalm written for an event, or about an event, uh, that looks back. Songs for ceremonies. There are royal celebrations, songs celebrating God's kingship or his king on the earth, like Psalm 2, where the Lord himself says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then there are, what brings us closer to today's study, songs of Zion. Songs about God's preserving Jerusalem. Or making Jerusalem as his dwelling place. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, is an example of a song of Zion. Now, briefly, I'm going to go over some of the others. There are psalms of mourning. Uh, so the, the, the blue section is about celebrating the order that God has established. Either who God is or the, or the things that God has ordained, be it his king or his place of worship. Uh, and then there are psalms about disorder. When things are a mess, laments, complaints, and actually, ironically, the Psalms, there are more Psalms of lament in the Psalms than Psalms of praise. Um, there are personal laments where personal distress, the psalmist cries out of them, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? National laments where the whole nation is crying out to God for help. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name and deliver us and forgive our sins. And uh, uh, another category of these are penitential laments where the psalmist is admitting that he has sinned that is either brought on all of this trouble or that his enemies have taken advantage of some lesser sin of his and they've sinned plenty more on top of it. Um, The most famous example, I suppose, is David's Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
And then there's imprecatory prayers, uh, those prayers for out of distress that God would bring judgment to fall on his enemies. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. Psalm 139. People love Psalm 139, except for those four verses. The scripture choruses of Psalm 139, for the whole thing, except for those four verses, because we're really uncomfortable with, with those. But the Psalms are loaded with them. Uh, and it's fascinating, as you go into the New Testament, there are prayers prayers of judgment in the New Testament too but they are almost all focused upon what God is doing in the gospel if anyone does not love our Lord Jesus Christ let him be accursed that's an imprecatory prayer if anyone brings to you another gospel let him be accursed so there are those kinds of prayers in the New Testament but they're more focused upon the, the great final work that God is doing in Christ Jesus Okay, all of this is extra. Uh, lastly, there's a, the green section in that chart. There are psalms about the restored order. So things have been in a mess. I've been in distress. I've lamented. I've cried. I've petitioned the Lord, and the Lord has brought help. So there are psalms of public thanks is the first one. And these are ones that probably appeal to us the most. These songs, but, but what's different about these that we don't often catch on to is that these songs were usually written to accompany bringing your thank offering to tabernacle or the temple. So all of those times where there's a, I will thank the Lord, you know, usually means I'm going to bring a thank offering to tabernacle. And I will tell, I will declare your name amongst my bro- the brethren or whatever. Is I'm going to tell people while I'm in line there to see the priest what it is that the Lord has done for me. And David writes songs to be sung for this. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. And he goes on in that psalm to talk about, I have not withheld my voice in speaking to the great congregation. Public thanks. There are songs of trust where declaring God's trustworthiness. I, I think uh, Psalm 23 is the great example of that. doesn't have a prayer for anything. The Lord is my shepherd. It's just an expression of trust. Uh, national remembrance, how the Lord has brought the nation out of distress, showing his covenant faithfulness. Psalm 106, he looked upon their distresses when he heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. And then lastly, there are songs of instruction. And this also connects in with our study today. These are songs that the singers use to teach God's wisdom. Um, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So much of Psalm 19 is a psalm uh, of instruction. There's a note at the bottom of the chart that tells you that there are lots of psalms that mix things together. So Psalm 19, there are th- there's three parts to it. There's a, a, a instruction about God's glory on display in creation, instruction about God's wisdom in the revealed word, and then it ends with a lament about David being aware of his sin and being concerned about his sin and praying that the Lord would keep him from sin and cleanse him from the, the sins he's not even aware that he's committed. So many, many psalms, you read through, once you start to realize there's these different genes that run through the Psalter, uh, sometimes you can be kind of excited, oh, I'm going to figure out what kind of psalm this is, and then you read through and it sounds, it sounds like there's three kinds of psalms in this one, and that's not uncommon. But uh, back to our psalm here, this is a song of Zion, Psalm 133, celebrating the goodness of the God who resides in the holy city. It is interesting in this psalm that God is never directly addressed. He's never prayed to. Uh, There is a kind of praise in the psalm. There's an exclamation, how good, how pleasant it is. But but that's sort of an indirect praise to God. It's Actually, there's there's a secondary sort of instructionary focus on this. This is secondarily a song of instruction in that David is inviting worshipers to value the gathering together of God's people who seek God's blessing that they are to cherish it. And he uses some very powerful images to uh, convey to them what they ought to, the way they ought to regard their fellowship together. The middle parts of the poem, verses 2 and 3, uh, are loaded with meditations on the good things which come to David's mind as he thinks of the goodness uh, of God's people gathering together. Okay, you can flip over to the, uh, to the back panels. And uh, on that um, 
up at the top of the back page where it says structure, there's a visual outline chart. And these are the sorts of things that I'm preparing for the whole book of Psalms. Um, I'm going to read just a portion of that now, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit. But up at the top, you'll see in the gray, it says purpose. David, early in his reign in Jerusalem, urges Israel to unify around the worship of Yahweh in Zion, where he bestows great blessing on those who gather in faith for the festivals. And over on the uh, far right side is some information I've already shared with you about the background to it. And then the, the psalm itself has three or four parts. The, the first part, the green section, is the headings, which are not part of the po- they're part of the psalm. They're not part of the poem. The poem starts off after it says a psalm of David. And the, the poem itself has three parts. Um, there's an introductory exclamation. There is an illustrative meditation. It uses illustrations to meditate on what has just been celebrated. And then there's a final concluding explanation as to why is this so good like this. So we, we will come back to this and, and walk through the psalm uh, phrase by phrase uh, at the end near the end. I want to mention some poetic features, uh, and some of these are things that you can see even in your English translation, and, and some of them are perhaps you can't, but there is rhyme and wordplay. Uh, I'm going to say right away, Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. Much English poetry, Western poetry, is driven by rhyme and rhythm. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. You know, we love, uh, kids love iambic pentameter. Hebrew poetry almost never does that. Uh, now, there is rhyme, but it's not predictable. It, it'll sometimes show up in the same line. It'll show up uh, a verse or two later, but but not in the in the same way. You couldn't chart it out uh, as easily as you could in, in, in English things. But uh, there are some things like in verse one, how good <clears throat> one of the opening words rhymes with the opening word of verse two. Matov, uh, how good rhymes with verse two, the good oil. Matov rhymes with hotov. Uh, lost in translation, but would be obvious to David and his audience. Um, how about this? This one you can see in the English Bible. There are three names in the psalm after David's mention. Verse 2 mentions Aaron, Ahron. Verse 3 mentions Herman, Hermon. And also Zion, Sion. Own, own, own. Yeah, they are. And it's right there in the English Bible because those words aren't translated, they're transliterated. So a little bit of rhyme running between verses 2 and 3. And um, verse 3 also has Sihon, Zion, uh, starts off the same way as the word for he commanded the blessing, Tsihwa, Tsihwa. You have that C sound at the beginning. So a little bit of rhyme and wordplay are used in constructing this. There's repetition. This is very obvious uh, in our translations. The word how is used twice in verse 1. How good and how pleasant. The word beard is used twice in verse 2. Coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard. It is like is used twice beginning of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Coming down upon uh, is used three to four times. Down upon is used four times. Coming down upon is three times. And you can take a look here at this chart and I've circled in different colors all the points of repetition and rhyme and this is a short poem but that's a lot that's a lot of artistic little features repetition uh, some rhyme that's been used and there are other things in there that, I, that I've not included there's other points of meter Hebrew poems do have meter it's completely untranslatable um, so the value of showing you this is not so you can feel how, so I can feel how smart I am, or you how smart you are, but to understand that there was an intentionality and an artistry and a kind of beauty that went into crafting this poem, as is true for so many of the Psalms. All right, let's talk about another poetic feature, and that is suspense. Now, not like a whodunit kind of suspense, but there is suspense. The reader is sometimes left hanging a little bit as things get going, like in verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is 
well, what are we talking about? And you don't, you don't know what's being exclaimed until you get to the end of the verse. Brothers dwelling together in unity. Oh, okay. That's what we're on to. Now, that's a short verse, so it's not a lot of suspense. But how about verse 2? What is this oil? It is like the precious oil upon the head. Uh, what oil, David? People anoint, there was all kinds of anointings. I mean, people used olive oil for everything. They, they used it for soap. They used it to, as facial cream, suntan lotion. They cooked with it. It was common when people came to your home, if you were to lavish them with hospitality, um, to anoint their head. And oftentimes it didn't mean taking a bottle of oil and glugging it over it. They, you might give them a fat cone. Sound appetizing. It would be shaped like a cone, and it would be animal fat or maybe wax infused with spices and perfumes, and you would put it on top of their head. And over the course, uh, and we're talking about a world where people don't get to bathe much, and they're out in hot, humid weather, and they stink, and they've come to your house, and no one wants a table full of stinky people. So if you're able to sit there and relax, this thing will sit on top of your head, and over the course of the meal, the hours that you're there, it will melt and run down into your hair and it will add a sweet perfume. There are pictures in Egypt of people handing these out before banquets. Uh, He anoints my head with oil. That might be the imagery David has in Psalm 23. So uh, it's like the good oil upon the beard. In fact, the word for good here is is actually a different word for good than in verse 1. It's a word that refers to scented oil. What kind of oil are we talking about? Coming down, uh, the oil on the head, coming down on the beard. Okay, this is a big event. It's melted down quite a bit. And then finally, Aaron's beard. Ah, now we're not talking about a dinner. We're talking about the anointing of the high priest. So there's a little bit of suspense. We're We're not sure what the image is until we get halfway into the verse. And then where and when is all of this stuff being celebrated in the psalm? I mean, what kind of gathering of brothers? We don't know what kind of gathering of brothers this is until the last verse. When he finally mentions Zion. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. There in Zion. Ah, now I see. Brothers gathering together. This isn't family reunion. This isn't holiday. This isn't birthdays or whatever. This is coming together to Zion. It's that kind of gathering. Now, once you see that, it's easy to reread the whole thing in light of the end. But when you're confronted with the poem the first time, you don't know exactly. This is an artistic element, a literary element of suspense to kind of pull you along, to keep going, and to meditate on it until you can uh, eventually read the beginning in light of the end. And by the way, that, that's the way Scripture often works. That's part of context, you know. Sometimes you don't know where an author is going until you get to the end. And then they intend for you to go back to the beginning and reread it and understand how it all fits together. Another poetic feature is imagery. There are two images that dominate the poem, both of them depicting moisture, the anointing of oil, and the dew of Hermon. The first one is a historical and liturgical event, and the last one is a geographic and meteorological event. They are both about wet things, both about moisture coming down. The the first one is about the consecration of Aaron. This is a sacred event that's being looked at. Um, The oil coming down on Aaron's head refers to his great consecration. He was the first high priest of the tabernacle system. And your your handout has a typo. Uh, The holy anointing oil, it should say Exodus 30, verses 23 to 33. And we may read that in just a moment, but... Uh, by, by taking the worshiper's mind back to an event which was 400 years before David wrote this. I mean, think about that. It's like us writing a song celebrating something that the pilgrims did. That's how far back it goes. By taking them back to an event at the beginning of their religious life, the song suggests that what they are doing there at Zion is in continuity with what God started back at Mount Sinai. God started something exquisite. What ha- but what God did at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai is not only an important geographical mountain, it is the high mountain of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament 
either gets you up to Mount Sinai or back down. It looms over the whole Old Testament. Yes, it prepares you for the greater height of Christ, but the Old Testament itself is centered around what God did at Mount Sinai. So David is saying what we are doing here in Zion is in connection with what God started back there when the first high priest was anointed. Um, and here I... Here's a... Uh, there was a Polaroid back in that day, and this is what Aaron wore. Uh, no, this is some artist reproductions of uh, the, the outfit that the high priest would wear. So, remove the hat, and at the consecration of Aaron, he is anointed with oil. It could have been it, it could have been bottle poured. It might have been smeared. Sometimes this oil is kind of pasty, and so could be kind of lathered on the head, and it's going to drip as well, and it's going to you know, eventually run down into his beard, and then in the, verse 2 ends by saying the, the, uh, the, the hem of his garments, that is the upper collar. You know, that's a lot of oil. Uh, a very, very sacred event. You would, you would smell Aaron before you saw him. Uh, the holy anointing oil, uh, the ingredients for this are in Exodus 30. And for the sake of time, I won't have us read that. But over and over again, the Lord says that this is to be the work of an apothecary. That is, you get an expert to compound this, and you shall make nothing else like it. It has God's trademark on it. This is not to be sold, reproduced. So the the ingredients are 500 shekels of myrrh. That's about 12 and a half pounds. 12 and a half, uh, 12 and a half pounds of cassia. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, that should say I've got the wrong quantity there. But then uh, six over six pounds of cane, and then 1.7 gallons of olive oil. So that's the ingredients for this holy anointing oil. And then the recipe, which isn't how you compound it, is not declared. But you said you get a professional to do this, get someone whose job is this. And according to custom, what they would do to make these fine perfumes is they would mash and pulverize the ingredients. They would strain out the larger pieces that resisted that. You would boil it down and then steep it. And in ideal situations, you would store it up to six months. For it to cure. Now, in the days of uh, the anointing of the high priest, that was all done in about a month's time. Uh, but this is exquisite stuff. It's, it's costly, beautiful stuff. Our gathering together, David says, is like that. Another point of imagery used, very different kind of image in verse 3, is the moisture of Mount Hermon. This is not a sacred event, but a refreshing phenomenon. Um, Mount Hermon is famous for its precipitation and dampness. Um, you know, certain parts of our country are famous for things like, uh, uh, let me think of some things. Well, Missouri is famous. What's that? Rain in Oregon. Yes, and uh, fog in San Francisco and coffee in Seattle. Well, I don't know if that applies to weather or not, but London for fog. Yes. So um, Herman is famous for its dew, as well as other kinds of precipitation. Um, General George Scott in the 1800s was doing an expedition in Israel. It was before it was industrialized, and he camped. He bivouacked outside Mount Mount, uh, Herman one morning and said when they awoke, they were surprised to see the ground was so wet they thought it had rained. But it was just the dew. Hermon is famous for dew. It's the headwaters of the Jordan, all of the major waterways up there uh, in the north. Now, the comparison that's being made here in verse 3 is imaginative. It is not literal. The, the dew of Hermon does not magically trans- show up on the, on the hills of Zion. It's not like a Bethel church experience. So, I just said, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. I mean, the dew of Hermon stays up there. No, yeah, okay, it create, it's part of a larger weather pattern and maybe Jerusalem gets rain from... Up there, but that's not the point. It's an imaginative commitment. You could, you could render it, it is like, it is as if the dew of Hermon were on the mountains of Zion. Something that doesn't happen. But imagine if it did. That's what our gathering together is like, David says. 
some uh, just for a sense of reference, Jerusalem and the red box on the left there in the center of the screen, Mount Hermon, as far north as you can go in the Israel of David's day. The highest peak in Israel, depending on where you measure it, nine to 10,000 feet in elevation, snow on the hills and even in winter. Uh, even in May. You can see in the picture on the right, I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting, but uh, that's a picture taken in the spring, and there is snow still up on the top of Mount Hermon. Jerusalem in David's day was, um, well, Jerusalem gets a fair amount. It gets more rain than Los Angeles does, but it's not Hermon. (laughs) And imagine this city, that's what Jerusalem looks like in David's day. And up here, uh, make sure I don't run over any cars. This is where the uh, tabernacle was going to be reestablished and eventually the temple built. So uh, imagine a festival now. Tens of thousands of extra people show up. There's not enough room for them to bed down there. All all the rooms get rented out, as you can imagine. People are tenting on the hillsides. There's a scarcity of commodities, of water. It stinks. All the extra sewage. But it's good. (laughs) Because of what, why they're there. It's as if the dew of Hermon was there on the hills of Zion. I want us to come back to the uh, the visual outline chart at the top of that back page and walk through the uh, this column by column. So over on the the left column, we'll go left we'll go left to right and down. So it starts with an introductory exclamation. That's the goodness of spiritual togetherness at the festival is exclaimed. Um, there's this eruptive praise of its pleasantness and goodness. How good and how pleasant. And, and good primarily means, well, pleasant. It's, it's not so much about the morality of it, though that word often does have a sense of morality, but it's paired with a word for the, the pleasantness. The relationship that David had with Jonathan was a pleasant sort of relationship. And the description of the pilgrims' close quarters is that brothers dwelling together. Boy, are they dwelling together. Cramped streets. You know, one of the songs of Zion uh, nearby, uh, we are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. It's like David has, has gone out and join the pilgrims and walk back in the city uh, within them, and, uh, and it's it's kind of it's kind of crowded. Let's see if I can find uh, uh, verse Psalm one twenty two. I was glad when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord." Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For their thrones were set up for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. So it's beautiful, it's great, but boy, is it crowded. (laughs) But it's great. So verse 1 is this introductory exclamation. Now we move on to the middle of the poem. There's an illustrative meditation. Two illustrations that cause them to meditate on why it is so good. The goodness of spiritual togetherness at the festival is illustrated. It's, it's analogous to the holy anointing oil which ran down on the first high priest. You, can't, you can hardly think of a more sacred event in Israel's history. The moment that God, I mean, God had told them what to do in Exodus and then in Leviticus to get the system going. And this is now the moment it started. And our being together is just like it was at the beginning. And then verse 3, the second analogy. It's analogous, analogous to the copious, refreshing dew that comes down on Mount Hermon. There would be some pilgrims there from that area. They'd come the furthest. They'd given the most to be there. And I'm sure if you live up in the north and you've got to trudge down to the south, like, oh, why, we go? Why, is it, why Jerusalem of all places? Uh, so perhaps in a nod to them. Yes, it's more fun up there, but what's happening here is like that in a spiritual way, and it's even better. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. And then in the middle of verse 3, we come to that last column. There's a concluding explanation. And I think that the end of verse 3 explains the whole poem, not just verse 3. It explains why it is so good and for brothers to dwell together in unity. Why it's likened unto the anointing oil. Why it's like the dew of Mount Hermon. The goodness of spiritual togetherness of the festival is explained. 
Could you, uh, yeah, bar the door to let the, keep the heathen out? <laughs> no heathen here at Zion. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Well, uh, I guess you've been made a gatekeeper. <laughs> All right. So the, the explanation that's given, firstly, is that Zion is the place of God's choosing. The divine selection of Zion as the place of blessing. For there, that is at Zion, God commanded the blessing. That, that's a peculiar expression to us, commanded the blessing. What's blessing? Go over there. What's this mean? Sometimes in the Psalms and elsewhere, the word commanded has a sense of... Uh, uh, it's a word for revelation, as an authoritative revelation. God had ordained that Zion be the place where. Remember, when Israel came out of Egypt, He kept saying to them, um, uh, "Until you come to the place in which I will show you." He didn't name what the sacred city was supposed to be. It would be four hundred years before Jerusalem becomes clear that this is the place that the Lord had chosen. Uh, the Lord had commanded that. This would be the place where he would dwell and that they must come to him there uh, according as the law required and they would then uh, partake of great blessing. And then the end of the psalm, the fullness of blessing is experienced in eternal life. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. And what is the blessing in particular? Life forever. Now, um, that's possible that that expression, life forever, doesn't mean only everlasting life, what we understand in a gospel-oriented context. The Lord had said to Israel, you keep my law and walk in my ways, you shall live. I set before you life and death is not so much an evangelistic petition to them. There's a promise of life in the land, a promise of life to every generation. But of course, the Old Testament is also um, pushing them to see there, there, there must be something even more than just God's blessing here in the land, in this place. The, the very God of life dwells here, and to know him are right is to have an experience that takes us even beyond this life. And so the end of the psalm, I think, begins to hint at the concept of everlasting life. The God who dwells there, being rightly related to him, having what we would call in New Testament language a saving relationship with him, brings us into everlasting life. Well, let me make some uh, comments about the relevance of this passage as we wind down. Now, to the original audience, this is a significant psalm because Israel was so often disunified. They were very often torn apart. Um, so the psalm here celebrates one of those precious few seasons where they enjoyed spiritual togetherness. As David becomes a unifier of the tribes and bringing them back into the worship of the Lord. Um, he has a, a this is an uncommon gathering here at the festival the event which is described uh, that such a cause for joy was likely not a let's call it a weekly Sabbath meeting um, this is not an ordinary, regular, frequent gathering, but it's one of the great annual festivals. People are seeing each other, haven't seen each other for a long time. It's a special convocation for those seeking God's blessing. And this is very important, letter C. The term brothers in verse 1 is the first time in the Bible that this word brother, brothers, has a quasi-spiritual meaning. Yes, all of these uh, people gathered are Israelites. They are genetically related to their father, uh, Israel. But there's something more than just, you know, we're all related, it's good to be here. There's something, this is the beginning of something that the New Testament, a concept, will, the New Testament will put on steroids the idea of the brotherhood of those in the household of faith. The end of the psalm mentions the greatest blessing ever given by God, that is life forever, life forevermore. And isn't it fascinating that outside of Zion it will be the Lord of life who gives his life so that we might enter into life. 
a thousand years later. Some notes about Christian application. Firstly, to the local church. As, as New Testament believers, we no longer have a sacred place to attend. The Lord has not commanded a blessing to your building or, or, or this conference center or anything like that. Our, our properties are, ought to be useful, they ought to be hospitable, but they are not truly sacred facilities. I've even moved away from referring to our gathering place as a sanctuary. It's a, it's a chapel, yeah, but the walls aren't sacred. Uh, it's the gathering of God's people that is a sacred thing. Jesus, of course, began preparing his disciples for this with a woman at the well. Uh, and she says, well, your people say we ought to worship in Jerusalem, and our fathers say we ought to worship in, in this mountain, and what are we supposed to do? And Jesus says the time has come, is coming, and now is when you will no longer say, shall we worship in this place that, but the Lord seeks those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. God's temple or tabernacle in this era is the gathering of His people, whatever the physical location is. The gathering of God's people itself constitutes a temple and something that ought to be highly prized. And so when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? In chapter 3, he's not talking about the physical body, he's talking about the church body. And the Lord will hold to account those who do work in his name and cause havoc to the the spiritual temple. So there's application to the local church. We ought to gather and prize our gathering as a sacred assembly, as a precious thing. And then to Christian, I think this is perhaps even more applicable, to Christian gatherings like the very one that we're having this week. Um, Psalm 133 celebrates a special gathering of people who don't normally see one another. Conventions, conferences, multi-church gatherings are an important way to rejoice together in the God who is at work all around the world. I, I think one of the, the best things about our conventions is great things, but hearing the reports about things that's going around the globe. Now, now I know there are Christian gatherings and groups which may, may give us pause and concern, and we heard plenty this morning about some very false movements. And, and then even apart from uh, false teachings, we there are Christian brothers and sisters who have, let's say, faulty teaching that, that might be difficult to partner with in certain ways. But our first desire should be, whenever we can, to unite with God's people and separate only when necessary. Uh, uh, I, I sometimes at the beginning of our morning services I'll, I'll say in, in the opening prayer, Lord we thank you that all around the world this day your name is being praised we, we, we must have a mindset that we are part of something much larger than ourselves so there's an application to Christian gatherings and lastly there's an application to our eschatological hope the ultimate gathering of God's people is going to be on the eternal shores when we're with the saints of all the ages gathered together in that great eternal day. And every, every time we gather together and sing and worship, it's a little bit of a practice for that event. And that ought to be something we look for and long for. And, and all the, the difficult relationships that we have now with the churches across town that do some wacky stuff, they're, they're brothers, they're sisters, but we just can't go along with that. It's going to be wonderful that one day we, that all of those things are just going to fall away and the differences and the difficulties will be done away as the Lord finishes His sanctifying work in all of us. This is part of our hope. And every, every time we gather, again, as a rehearsal for the great day. Would you join me please in prayer? Father, we are thankful for the time we've had this morning to consider this beautiful psalm and its rich relevance. May we be those who value the fellowship we have with one another, that we view it as something which is sacred, with something that you have ordained, that we view it as something which is precious and refreshing. Uh, and, and may we contribute to the sweetness and the preciousness of gathering together, uh, both at this conference and as we go home to our various churches and our interactions with other brothers and sisters. And as we long for and look for the great day when you finish your saving work and gather together people of every tribe and tongue and nation, and forever we delight ourselves in the great things that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.